Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. This is weird because it's a live show, but I can't hear anyone. But welcome to a live edition of Strong Language and Violent Scenes. It is me, Mitch Bain, a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. I, I don't know what even... I, I've lost the capacity to understand even what is werewolf and what is not. That's fair. And the man responsible for us having to ask that question is the writer, director and star of Dementia Part 2, Matt Mercer. Matt, good evening and welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. I absolutely adore this movie for several reasons and i cannot wait to talk about it excellent Yay. now um before we get into this I want to say a huge thanks to mitch harrod for having us once again yep silent mitch lurking in the background he's even turned his camera off oh he's back looking sneaky yeah yeah looks like he looks like he's up to something and he probably is uh but matt yeah uh for your third appearance on the show so way way back you did halloween six and then you specifically asked to come back and do Ravenous, which we're more than happy to do. Uh, this time, the Howling 3, the marsupials. I have loads of questions, but chiefly, why? Well, I understand on an objective level, this is probably the worst of the three I've chosen. Potentially. I love this movie for a lot of reasons, and I actually do think it's a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, one of the reasons I chose it is this is part of the final Shockdown Saturdays that Mitch has put together, and uh, which is awesome, and I'm so thrilled to be a part of it. And I'm thrilled that he re-screened Dementia Part 2. So I was trying to sort of come up with something to discuss that dovetails with that movie in, in the way it was made. Uh, a okay. sequel that has nothing to do with the previous movie or movies <laughs> was made on an extremely low budget with extremely limited resources and time. Okay. Uh, that's also just batshit and weird and almost feels like it was written in a stream of conscious kind of way. And I think Howling 3 fits the bill. Even though, now that I've revisited it, it's jammed with fucking plot. It is loaded. <laughs> so, uh, to an extent that it terrifies me that I have to sum- summarize this fucking movie. <laughs> so that's yeah. why I chose it. Yeah, that would yeah. be fun. So, how did you come across this to begin with, then? Uh, unsurprisingly, my first watch of this was today. But what was yours? <laughs> Classic <laughs> Mitch Bain. <laughs> Uh, I came across it when I was a kid. Uh, I was very lucky to have a mother who let me watch movies that she deemed... Uh, I, basically, I could watch whatever I wanted, any horror movie I wanted, because um, uh, I, I guess she realized as a child I could handle it, and I was really into it. And I saw the first Howling, the original Howling, Joe Dante's Howling first, and I wanted to see the sequels. Did not was not allowed to see the second one, if I recall, I think probably because of the copious... Uh, just the end credits the alone. Uh, the end credits alone, yeah, the 17 bustier bursting, the, yeah, that. <laughs> so, uh, But Howling 3 I saw at a young age, and I just liked it, and I think it's a very, like, I don't want to say kid-friendly <laughs> entirely, but it's, it's <laughs> like, more buoyant and fun than the first two Howlings, and it's also, you know, at that time there was this sort of obsession with Australia in the 80s and how wild and crazy it was 
the peak of which was probably Crocodile Dundee. And I think I sort of, like a lot of Americans, saw Australia as this like crazy place with crazy creatures. And <laughs> just the idea behind Howling 3 alone seemed so um, wild. And I mean, it's a wild movie. And it, it's very, as a child, it was, I was very attracted to its aesthetic. And I also liked Razorback as a child. And it's the same oh, yeah. special effects artist as Bob McCarran. Which, clearly, he reused the Razorback in this movie, but we'll get to that. So my my original plan was to triple bill the first three, but um, the second one was uh, not immediately accessible, kind of like under the time that I had. So I watched the first one, but I haven't seen the second one. But um, I have been assured from multiple sources that that is not massively important. No, you're not really going to be missing no. out on any gigantic overarching plotline here, Mitch. Like, there's there's really nothing that <laughs> you're going to take away from this that you feel it wasn't fleshed out in the previous films. Okay, no, I, I, certainly, I don't think I left it with any unanswered questions. Yeah, no, no. I'm seeing a few copies of Howling 2 floating about, actually, on the screen right now. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. A few show-offs in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Matt, you were just talking yeah. before uh, before everyone entered the room about the fact that you'd forgotten that we were going to ask you to do a 30-second synopsis of uh, The Howling 3. Uh, that time has come. Ah, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you now, this is... I made some like notes in my little notebook here. Paper. Yeah, I mean, look at the no- the the. <laughs> this is basically a beat sheet of the plot, and I know that most people will be listening to this and won't see it, but this movie's nuts. I mean, there's no way. I'll try. Sure. Okay, um, well, Andy, neither. <laughs> Andy, neither. Ask. Seconds, Mitch. Yes, yes, yes. Good man. Okay, right, Matt. Three, two, one. Synopsis eyes. All right. The government has discovered that there have been werewolf attacks in present day in Siberia, in the USSR, as well as potentially in Australia. And a uh, professor is hired to, with the military to seek out what the cause of this. Meanwhile, a young woman has escaped a cult of marsupial werewolves and comes to Sydney to fulfill her dreams. She doesn't know what her dreams are. She ends up being an actress in horror movies. Eventually, she has to run away back to the cult, back time. to the woods to try to escape the government. Time, Matt. Great. Time. <laughs> Pencils down. Show a bit of respect. That was about 10 minutes of the movie. Yep, yep. Um, Wow, wow. Mitch, would you care to know how I came about this film? Yes, Andy, go on. I went through a phase where, I I mean, I'm a massive Joe Dante guy. I had watched, like, Piranha, and I'd seen The Howling. The Bubs is one of my favourite films of all time. I thought, right, well, I've seen these films now. I've seen this bubble. Let me expand. So I went into things like Piranha 2. Uh, and I went into things like The Howling 2 <clears throat> and actually I've re- I, I just rewatched Howling 2 and Howling 3 The Marsupials in preparation for this and uh, okay. I actually far prefer part 3 to part 2 this, like, I mean but that, it's, it's been something that I hadn't really seen since the first time that I saw it like, okay. it's kind of so separate from The Howling that I just felt like nah, nah I'm never going to watch this again this isn't The Howling and sure. I'm delighted to revisit it now um, because it feels like a much more honest experience than the Howling Two. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I mean, I, I, my my instinct was to be like, "Ooh, controversial," but I haven't seen the Howling Two, so <laughs> so Matt. <laughs> well, I, I agree with that. I I revisited them as well, and I, I think I watched Howling Two twice this week, including some of the commentary. Wow! <laughs> or no, okay. I'm sorry, Howling Three. Howling Three. I was gonna say like uh, that was yeah, next, next level. Three. 
but I did watch Howling 2 as well. And I do think Howling 3 is a better movie and a more consistent movie in terms of its tone. And also, I think Philippe Mora was allowed to do more of what he wanted with Howling 3 because it was more independently made. He was answering to Hemdale on the second one and John Daly. And there were some rough patches on that movie, like when he needed to get the werewolf suits with suits which came late john daly sent him like ape suits from planet of the apes i mean there were just all these problems on it <laughs> and this one um even though it's a little hard to follow sometimes and hard to determine exactly what philip mora's themes were i think he, he the ecological themes are very clear and he was yeah. trying to say something with this movie so i think it was more this one more came from the heart is what i'm trying to say Agreed. and also Again, it's batshit. These Bob McCarran effects, it's insanely edited by, um, uh, yeah, Lee Smith, cut it, who's gone on to do all of Christopher Nolan's movies. No way! Yeah, like this amazing editor. And uh, this movie relies very heavily on its editing, and the editing is great. There's a lot of proper use of the flash cut, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, So I like it a lot more than two. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This film starts with a lot of history. This film actually starts with uh, Wolf roaring in the style of the MGM logo, which is amazing. Yep, powerful <laughs> stuff. <laughs> but yeah, Cape York, Australia, circa 1905 is our first stop, mm. uh, where um, Aborigines kill a wolf-like creature in what appears to be a sacrifice. I say wolf-like creature. Yeah, are you talking about the, the, the wolf with the human legs? Yes, like, the very same. Kind of like the reverse mermaid. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah, it has strangely human-looking legs, and it's, uh, yeah, the footage is uh, also bizarrely modern-looking, despite all of the, um, I guess it wouldn't be filters, like opticals that they've put over it. Sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, the movie opens with footage of, of, of some natives having killed this creature, and the footage is introduced to a classroom at a uh, university in California being taught by a professor named Beckmeyer, played by Barry Otto. Yeah. The always yeah. reliable Barry Otto. And basically he's saying this is footage that his grandfather shot, and they aren't really sure how they made such a realistic wolf outfit for this ceremony. Yeah. And I we're mean, soon to find it might not be an outfit. I don't soon know. To there's a few other little bits and bobs that happened before this, which I think are quite important. Cause they, That's true. They come to bear later in the story, and I think... Uh, how Beckmeyer is introduced into the story is pretty great because he's introduced as this kind of Fox Mulder-esque character. Um, yes. Who is like at the beck and call of not the CIA, but the NIA, uh, who will bring him in <laughs> when they have something that's unexplainable. Uh, and he'll, he'll, he'll get to the bottom of that. But prior to that, we do see these... We, we get a kind of whistle-stop tour of the globe, kind of all four corners. <laughs> we're in Australia, boom, and then we're off to Siberia to see that guy running uh not from a wolf but directly towards <laughs> at a wolf uh, yep toward a wolf yep. Yep. yeah he, he's like looking in a cabin for some reason and then runs right at camera and screams yeah and yeah. that's like there's two shots they clearly dressed this cabin because this whole movie was shot in australia so they put a bunch yep. of fake snow on it and had this guy got shot this guy in like two shots <laughs> but then we yeah. do jump briefly to the nia and we see that they do keep a database you'll be glad to know much because i know that you're a detail-orientated guy very uh, efficient in that way yeah yeah they keep a database <laughs> of lycanth attacks which is handy. yeah is that, sounds like a, that, that sounds like a job for an intern you don't give this to an intern yeah and like andy said they they, they immediately they say 
immediately we got to get Beckmeyer because he's the one who knows this weird shit. That's and right. that, yeah. so all of this happens before we go to the classroom where we introduce Beckmeyer. Yeah, where um, I, I I think that this intro is pretty cool, but I think it's funny that his character is an anthropologist and he trips over the word anthropological and they leave it in. <laughs> He does. Yeah, and I also like that when he's describing the video, he's looking straight down the barrel of the camera. Like, it's a very Jonathan Demi moment. And I like to think that Demi saw this and said, oh my God, that's so effective. There's a lot of weird directorial decisions like that in this yeah. film. Like, when he, when he visits the president a wee while in the, in the, the strange bathhouse, I don't know yeah. what the fuck that's all about. But it's... Well, yeah, he, he goes there because he's, he, he, in the class, he tells his class, in that first scene where he's introduced, he's like, I've uh, no class tomorrow. I have to go to Washington, D.C. And he meets the president in a bathhouse or something. Like, yeah. in the president's pool. Strange Literally, stuff. as we see it one second later. He's like, there will, be yeah. no cl- there will be no class tomorrow. I have to go to Washington. And literally the next thing you see is him in Washington, like you say, in the, in a bathhouse talking to the president. It's who's such a, a weird introduction game. to the president. Like, it's weird that you would be ushered straight past the president's office and into what is essentially his swimming pool. Like, he gives off yeah. very Trumpian vibes. This he does. Guy. Like, there's, he's, he has that, str- that vibe yeah. about him that he... This is a guy who spends half his time by the pool, reeks vaguely of Russian hooker piss, just, he's just a, a generally. He totally. He's, he's he is. Uh, he definitely presages Trump, and I, I mean, he he looks like a guy who is the regional manager for a bunch of Papa Johns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's like, yeah, he's basically Trump, and I love that the camera does this low push into the into a two shot of the two yeah. of them and Barry Otto looks straight down the barrel again, like straight into the camera. And the president is like, don't worry, we just record everything around here. But when they cut back to the wide, there's no camera. And this movie <laughs> commits that crime constantly. But it's in the favor of, you know, a very lively editing style. And it's so weird. I mean, it feels like they came up with that idea on the day. Uh, yeah, there's on the camera in the room. Totally. It's very weird. And yeah. this is kind of where the film introduces the weird zipping noise between scene transitions as well. It's I, like, yeah. it's just it's so fucking weird. Like, but it, even all the dialogue between the president, there's a moment where the president like flat out believes that Beckmeyer's a liar because he proposes the preposterous concept of a platypus. <laughs> yeah, because like, Austra- he says Australia's fu- Australia's full of freaks, yeah, like, like the platypus. So of course that's the other place werewolves are found. Maybe even a different kind of werewolf. My favorite, my favorite line of dialogue potentially in the whole film is here when uh, he sets out his theory to the president, and he's like, "I am like moderately confident of the existence of werewolves in Russia." And his response is, "I am as anti-communist as the next man, but this is preposterous." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think the president also says something like. Where else might they be? And he's like, well, Australia. Definitely Australia. Definitely Australia. It's like, cool, okay. From the way. Yeah. Turns out, he knows. Spoiler. But he's, he's known all along. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think it's funny here as well that, like, um, Beckmeyer talks to someone else, um, presumably just, like, another one, another person in their employ, who also shows a bit of scepticism, again, about the broad conceptual notion of the existence of werewolves. Sure. Like, he's talking to this guy and he talks about werewolves and the guy's like, I'm not so sure. And he's like, when did you become a conservative? I was like, when did the belief in werewolves become a liberal ideology? <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Key character introduction at this point, Jaboa. Yeah, not just Jaboa, right. though. You get, yeah, you get, uh, get Philo. a here. Yeah, Philo. Mm-hmm, and the first Philo. of several times in this film where people offer Jaboa audio equipment for sex. 
What? <laughs> Did you not notice this? Like, wow! I didn't notice this through line. Please, ex- please expand. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm gonna a, need well, some more. There's a bit in this where, I'm just, like, where, where Thilo's trying to fuck Jabo, right? And uh, he's yeah. like, "Look, I'll buy you a Sony." He specifically says Sony Walkman, like he brands it. Right? He's like, "I'll yeah, buy that's, you a that's Sony logo, that's, Top that's of the range, facing out stuff. Uh, yeah. Top of the range, yeah. shit. If you, uh, if you, if you, if you stay here and fuck me, and then later on when she's harassed by the two tramps on the bit, like, oh, I don't even know if they're tramps. I think they're just pissed guys. Like one guy looks like he's kind of spewed down his shot, which has been me many a night. Yeah. But he's like, "If you let me fuck you, I'll give you a stereo." Compact disc player, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should be clear, by the way, that these characters are introduced as a group, like a not a cult, but sort of a, 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 a faction a commune, living kind of a commune. Yeah, commune is a good way to put it. And they live off the grid. It's uh, Thilo's kind of the leader. Sure. He's played by Max Fairchild, who was sort of the he's in the first Mad Max as like the the dense guy who lives on the property that they yeah. visit. You get a sense pretty quick these must be because of the another blip transition without any uh <laughs> anything else to get us there we're suddenly we, we get the feeling these must be the the where the werewolves that beckmeyer might be talking about sure, there, yeah. there's a reason that they live off the grid yeah probably yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's because of werewolves historically blase attitude to council tax yeah but pretty quickly uh jaboa defies thylo's attempts to I guess rape her, and I guess, she yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, basically, yes. <laughs> I yeah. guess the lure of yeah. a Sony Walkman is not strong enough to keep up there. No, for that unpleasantness. No. Uh, uh, so she, again, with no other transition, like literally, he <laughs> the transition is he grabs her, and she kicks him in the balls and begins to run into the woods. Cut to a bus on the road, and she's on a on a bus going to Sydney. <laughs> That's someone her escape. Gets, someone gets kicked in the balls within <laughs> ten minutes of this film. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Again, this is the first ten minutes of the movie too. We're talking. It, this is moving so fast. But when, yeah, she, yeah. when she gets away, like immediately, she sat next to that guy, and he's like, "Oh, where are you running off to? Why are you running away?" And I think this is a direct quote. She says, "My stepfather tried to rape me, and he's a werewolf." And the guy goes, "Go." Yeah, yeah. You know what? Fair <laughs> he's enough. He's a priest. Nothing weird about that. No. Um, and I kind of took that as being like, "Well, you know what? Based on the situation as described, fair enough." <laughs> right yeah exactly i don't even know um, if i was on a bus next to someone who came back to me with I, I don't even think i would be bold enough to ask for more information i think the fact that she's brought up rape and werewolves in the one sentence i would be quite content to just sit and stew on that for the rest of the journey yeah what did that mean right there's a lot to 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 mull over there yeah, I think there is. Um, yeah. uh, for another time, perhaps. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you say, Matt, she gets she gets accosted. She gets accosted again as she sleeps on a park bench outside the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, there's more. Yeah, you're right. There is more audio equipment negotiation here. She's not for it, um, <laughs> understandably. But yeah, she's um, identified or spotted, should I say, uh, by Donnie at this point, an American driving a car, spots her, mm-hmm. pulls over. Mm-hmm. Um, a brief foot chase ensues mm-hmm. at this point, which I guess kind of tracks. I think like because he, he does, it, like he doesn't explain his motives very clearly when he starts running towards no, her. This shit would not fly nowadays. Like what he does no. here is. No, he he's literally driving down the street and sees her sitting in a park next to the bridge and across from the Sydney Opera House and stops the car, gets out and just starts running at her, which yeah. is terrifying. Yeah, uh, when she gets up and like takes off running, it's like a hundred percent absolutely the correct response to that approach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> yeah, like, like poorly considered from the ground up from the guy. Yeah, like this is quite a long foot chase, like through populated streets. He yeah. sticks with it. That makes it creepier that he doesn't just give up immediately. You really begin to consider his motives because it's quite a foot chase, and you know, not only is the motivation probably just to burn some screen time, mm-hmm. but also he is voraciously chasing chasing her, and it's like this guy probably is up to no good can't possibly be anything good <laughs> what he's a, but then yeah as it turns out yeah um yeah he wants to offer her a part in shapeshifters part eight um yeah he's a movie guy a pa or something i don't know what his job is on the movie exactly it's never very clear that is yeah that is not directly addressed apart, apart from being a kind of like a gorilla talent scout um yeah like yeah he doesn't just <laughs> yeah, gorilla talent scout driving down the road sees her, parks his car, and begins to chase her. That's the kind of talent scout he is. No, but just like um, oh yeah, just go for a drive. If you spot anybody that you think fits the bill, just like um, uh, park your car very abruptly, then pursue them as aggressively as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then when you corner them in an alley, <laughs> say, "Wait, I'm not trying to attack you. I'm trying to give you a job." Yeah, it, don't give me a so- Someone sent me to find you. I've got a Sony Walkman for you in the car. Yeah, right. Don't concern yourself too much with explaining your motivations out of the gate. Like, um, yeah, like details. Um, Donnie yeah, Martin, no, he wants... by the way, uh, two first names, as she yes. points out. Uh, much like myself. As opposed to me, who has two oh. surnames. But, uh, yeah, he offers her a job on the spot because she is direct quote wild looking. Uh, her suspicion is completely instantly gone. She goes with it. She is incredibly attractive, by the way. She she does a good job. I read somewhere that originally they wanted uh, Nicole Kidman to play her. Yes, that's true. Uh, Nicole Kidman had done, just before this, had done, uh, what's the title of that movie? Is it BMX? BMX Bandits. Racers? BMX Bandits. Yeah, uh, I think that's the title. The one that Brian Trenchard Smith directed. Yeah. It's BMX Bandits, right? Yeah. yeah. She had just done that, and uh, I believe instead of this, she did... Uh, anything uh, <laughs> right yeah she did uh, uh what's the dead calm was her it was like the next thing that's, a great, but, that's um, a fucking great film yeah another great that was the Australian right decision film. yes right but they get imogen annesley who's gorgeous and really good i actually like think, she yeah she is pretty good like she's yeah considering the lunatic dialogue she has to say yeah. that really i mean the dialogue fits the movie but it's she makes it sound very natural yeah. and really has to change on a dime uh, as the movie progresses, uh, her motivations. She's close to being activity. my MVP, but she's edged out by a character who we'll get to later, who is just sensational. Oh, I can't wait. I think I know who you mean, but okay. Um, uh, <laughs> we get a brief, like, the seed is planted for werewolf, uh, werewolf nuns at this point. Amazing. That's right. Yeah. The commune sends some werewolves after her to to find her since she has escaped uh and the these women are dressed like nuns because that's a good way to blend in yeah and <laughs> everyone blend in by standing out <laughs> right yeah exactly and they're on the same bus that she took to get to sydney they just hop on the same bus and also have a make a weird scene and scream at this uh child well imogen ansley doesn't make a weird scene the nuns make a weird scene they yeah, scream sure. at a child yeah. <laughs> growl at a child um, um, they arrive on set though, um, and we meet director Jack Citron here. Who I kind of I, I had written down that Jack Citron looked like John Goodman transformed into Alfred Hitchcock and got stuck halfway. Wow! Yeah, he got in the Brundlefly uh, <laughs> transporter with both of those people. Yeah, exactly the right thing. Yeah, exactly that. I feel I, I feel like mannerism and diction and stuff for him. It kind of feels a bit Hitchcockian to me. He's great, by the way. Yes. He's fucking brilliant. 
he really is. Uh, he knows exactly what he's in, and he's very specific with what he does. Yeah, he plays directly to that in a way that I think is like, for as little as he has to do, I think he gets it all really right. I think it's incredibly callous, though, that only now she finds out that in her first scene she'll be raped by four beasts. It is, yeah. He pretty much presents that idea immediately and very quickly, but her response is great. She just laughs. And uh, his response is, well, I love vivaciousness. <laughs> okay. Um, she has some uh, things to say about the werewolf makeup in this as well. So do we but all. F- yeah, that, but that's the first thing that she says. And I think that, like, I think this is actually, this leads into a set piece that I think is really fun. Because, like, we see the werewolf makeup and she's like, that's silly. And then they go to see, like, her and uh, she and Donnie go on a date that evening. And they go to see the film within a film that came from Uranus, which, honestly, I would like to see the whole of. I can't get enough of It Came From Uranus. It is one of the best moments in isolation in the whole film. The the, the wolf transformation is hilarious. I think the wolf transformation in It Came From Uranus is great fun. I think it's it's great. The bladder bladder effect work is unreal. It's off the chain. I love it, love it, love it. It's my second favourite body horror transformation in an Australian film that isn't body melt. Yeah, what an I, incredibly specific silver medal you just detailed there. <laughs> <laughs> I agree entirely. This is a highlight of the movie, the movie within the movie. It came from Uranus. It has an appeal to it, like, uh, and I mentioned this before when we were getting started, like, it, it, the lighting and the effects look like um, the Joe Dante segment of Twilight Zone, the movie. Sure. Like it has that appeal. There's this absurdity to the, it's almost... Uh, satirizing the cl- the werewolf transformation that had started to become the next classic werewolf transformation by then in the 80s but it still looks really unnerving especially like when the snout is going out and the tongue is like wagging yeah i don't know what that movie is about the title doesn't really match what we're seeing no, on screen, but man it's it's great yeah, the nurse with the extremely thick southern accent. She's clearly Australian doing a southern accent. <laughs> yeah. and it's when, just when we see bananas. the werewolf's mouth, and it is just enormous and long, and it's so long. It's yeah. so fucking good. After we see them watching this in the cinema, we then immediately smash cut to them in a post-coital embrace while the worst cover of Bad Moon Rising I've ever heard <laughs> plays in the background. I get the impression that Donnie's sex playlist would be an absolute fucking atrocity. You know, Mitch, that's going to be some, That's going to be a sex playlist I'm going to fucking hate if it's all slow jam versions of songs I, already yeah. exist. That's Breathy my, cover versions. Yeah. That's my fucking... But I'm out. I was almost ready to Britain's Got Talent X out of this film when I heard that. <laughs> yeah, this whole movie's loaded with diegetic slow synth cues, <laughs> synth wave cues that are from the 80s. Also, that are just atrocious. Yeah, that sex, <laughs> Why are they so fucking wet? They are so sweaty. They're like Robert Hayes in airplane sweat. <laughs> it is like streaming down their fucking face. Yeah, no, it's like it's like like if it wasn't for the fact that you immediately see them in a bedroom, you would swear blind they just fucked in a sauna. <laughs> like, I, I I can only imagine the the portion of this budget that went on glycerin because everyone <laughs> in together they are just um but yeah he does discover at this point that her uh, her stomach is covered in a thin downy hair and has a long horizontal scar on it which yeah i would i would say prompt some questions he's confused but you know what not disgusted he's into it yeah never does he waver in his affection or love for her the next thing we see is the rap party for the film where uh jerboa starts transforming against the kind of uh strobe lights Flashing lights mm-hmm. are bad for railroads, apparently. Uh, the moon, um, yes, the apparently, yeah, like, like 
Like we just we just got to accept that as canon. It's like yeah, like um, strobe lights induce werewolf transformations. So yeah, um, yeah they introduced that this is a thing. Like the in, in in at least with uh, in this movie, it is strobes kind of like how uh, flashing lights affect make epileptics seize up. This is uh, people who have epilepsy seize up. This is these strobes make people turn. And I think yeah. she says in that at the end of that sweaty sex scene, she says it's not the moon. You know, she's like, it's the, 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 all the rules you've heard do not apply, but I guess it's strobes. But that's much, you know? that's much weirder and far more specific than the moon. Um, and yet they keep cutting to the moon. <laughs> giant full moon over the city. <laughs> you know, that thing we just said was irrelevant. Let's look at it again. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's funny that she like, she flees mid transportation. She leaves, uh, transformation, should I say. She leaves and she takes off running. And I think it's funny because this is shot really intensely and then a lot of close ups and you see her kind of like half transforming and stuff, but her run never rises above a jog. Yeah, no, she's, she's moving a lot in position she's you know gunning it yeah. in a slow way she's making yeah. it look like she's really going for it and the wide angle lens helps this thing is shot in like four millimeter lenses so it's this super <laughs> wide pov that's pretty cool like when she goes in the arcade and it's just going through all the games that's that's neat absolutely she gets hit by a car during this uh during, the, during this during this entire uh, during this entire sequence yeah, she does yeah yeah, yeah. Didn't mean to, didn't mean to just toss that off quite so like quite so blase. But yeah, then she gets taken to a hospital where it is um, accurately concluded that um, there is more going on than the auto injuries that she sustained. Well, yeah, she's got a physiology that would indicate that she is not a human lady necessarily, yep. or not not, not all the not all the way. Also, she's yeah. pregnant. I believe that that's I believe that's arrived at at this point as well. Um, while she's like um, while she's under observation, like see like. We get this um, genuinely horrendously nightmarish sequence where we flash back to her and we see the kind of like, it's the same shot of the fur on her stomach in the pouch. But then also we see at that point like this kind of monstrous like prehensile hell beast that's lurking inside it that pops up for a second as well. Um, the entire way that's put together is like really disorientating and horrible and kind of great, I think. It is because when we actually see the reality of the marsupial baby, it's... It's kind of sweet. It's just like one of those naked mole rats. It's just as you would expect a mammalian right. baby to be. It's kind of just pink and hairless and weird. Yeah, yeah. This whole nightmare sequence, and I guess it's brought on by they have her in a lab. That, by the way, as the movie goes on, this lab set is used repeatedly. It's oh, used right. a lot. They just keep redressing the same yeah. room. Oh, the they really get a lot of mileage out of it, don't they? There's yeah. a moment later on where, like. You see, like, there's a, a, an unbelievable amount of carnage and slaughter in a hospital. And then, like, two seconds later, <laughs> we've got someone else strapped into a chair in that same room. And I was like, where's all the dead guys? Like, is it just business as usual? Like, there was, like, 14 dead men in this room a minute ago. Yeah. Just turn they it over really them, fast, man. Just them right part out. of it. That's just it. part of it. Yeah. The wheels of government don't stop, Mitch. Oh, but this, the, 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 I think the uh, poking and prodding the... the biological inspection she you know in the strobes she has this semi sort of nightmare slash transformation and yeah this vision of giving birth is it's straight out of basically aliens like zagorny weaver's nightmare but with a <laughs> lot of flash cutting and clearly like lee smith is a obviously a really good editor but he's just he's just borrowing footage from like there's a quick flash of like an attack that happens in the woods later it's almost like wait is she predict like having a a future prediction of what's going to happen later on it's very strange but it's really effective it's just weird 
this it keeps you interested. <laughs> this this feels like a reasonable juncture to talk about the fact that this film was released as a PG thirteen originally. Uh, there's, yeah. there's really not that much in it that's massively distasteful. No, I, it, it, there are things that's like surprising they got away with with the PG thirteen, but it's um, you know, yeah, it's not distasteful and it's not yeah. There's nothing that pushes the the envelope in terms of language or like anything that would have made it an R at the time. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I, th- I, I think I think that that's the right way of talking about it. I think that it, it kind of feels like it's like. It feels like it exists a little bit south of the line, the PG thirteen, rather than being kind of like an outrageous misclassification. But it does feel like yeah. it's like that still feels a little bit soft to my mind. I would say, yeah, yeah, it's it's more unnerving in the way it's it's cut and with what it's uh, it's tone sometimes than really being overtly in your face, uh, gory or full of nudity or anything it's it's doing something very different from howling too Mm. but i think you know to talk a little bit about philippe mora as a director by the way his career is all over the place he's directed so many different kinds of movies including like communion with christopher walken he made that um but his goal with this by the way i think it's good beast within is yeah so so good which is what got him halloween too or howling too you said i was gonna do that it's so it was me you said i was gonna do that it's so easy to to slip i did it first but um yeah he uh his goal with this was to do something that had sort of a not a message but a theme of an ecological theme and also make it a little more not kid friendly but a little more have a wider audience uh that doesn't mean it it pulls its punches or doesn't have weird i mean it came from uranus is a good example that's like close to you know you know, the way this movie was made, by the way, is it basically, you know, Howling 2 was a big success, but the Australian, he wanted to shoot the third one in Australia, and they wanted another Howling, but they wouldn't, uh, the Australian Film Commission would not give him any money or help with shooting this, so he had to get the money independent. When he left the meeting with the Australian Film Commission, there was a, a, Philippine, a bank of the Philippines was right across the street, and he just went in there and said hey, I want a million dollars to make a movie. The last one was made for about a million and pre-sold on VHS for five million. They were like, oh, that's a good return. Sure. He immediately just had the money. No way. Really? Yeah, it was made entirely independently, this movie. So I think him getting to dictate that tone, you know, Mm -hmm. came from the fact that it was independent. And somehow he and the producer, Charles Waterstreet, just had the rights to this movie. Sorry to go off on this tangent, but I'm just trying to get a story of how it got to this this, this tone. I, I know that he it still mentions Gary Brander in the like in the credits and stuff like that because obviously he wrote the yeah. actual The Howling, but like this couldn't be more removed from anything Brander had written, and it really has fuck all to do <laughs> with The Howling in any way, and he had no involvement in The Howling three at all. Like so, it's no, yeah. So I, I don't no, know it, who he wound up in such massive control of The Howling. It, it was. Brandner was really dissatisfied with the first one. As good as the first movie is, Brandner felt that it 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 deviated too much from right. from his book. So he he but he really liked Brandner, the author of the books, really liked Howling too. And he he wrote all these sequels. Brandner did, but they were nothing like any of the movies. But he really liked Howling too, and he really liked Philippe Mora. So when it came time to get the rights for the third one, which again has nothing to do with any of the movies, nothing to do with Brandner's books, Brand, uh, Brandner was like, yeah, sure, great, you're a great guy. <laughs> but, but didn't seem to care that much like the first one, it had nothing to do with the book. 
So I don't know. They got the rights and they made it. Mm. Did anyone, um, like, when Donnie comes to the hospital, did anyone else kind of hope that he would go the rest of this film dressed like Dracula, much like Robert Prosky does in Gremlins 2? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what I will say is that Donnie accepts everything that, like, every, every revelation that is fed to Donnie about him potentially being the uh, father of a human mm-hmm. werewolf uh, crossbreed lycanthrope child, he greets with like absolute <laughs> passivity. He's just like, "Sweet, he's over the moon. Cool. He's gonna be a like, like, yeah. Yep, he's just like, like, he, like, the, like none of the, none of the, like, there's no curious like <laughs> biological questions or something like that. He's just like, "Yep, yeah, okay, great, sign me up. I like that. That's I'm right, because yeah, that's right, because they've called in Beckmeyer. Beckmeyer re-enters the story. By the way, they've called him in to help." biologically investigates uh jaboa and what kind of creature she might be that's right and uh at the same time though those nuns the nun werewolves from the from the commune show up and they kill slaughter everybody and steal her steal jaboa away at this point donnie shows up and they and beckmeyer fills him in on jaboa's nature and who she is and yeah donnie like you said is completely he's like i i'm in love with her yeah he, he is, he's a true blue good guy. I've, I'm yeah. in love with her. 100%. I've always wanted a child. This has yeah. all worked out perfectly. This has been the best three days of my life. Yeah, um, exactly. They tell him that she's pregnant, and he's like, we got to find her. we got to protect her. Yep, he's These all in. Nuns and then the minute and they the arrive in Australia, be Beckmeyer has gone full Indiana Jones. Like He is dressed top to toe like Indiana Jones. Absolutely. He's got a shitty version of the fedora. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As far yeah. as this budget would allow. Um, <laughs> important character introduction at this point as uh, Beckmeyer and his sidekick, Professor Sharp, uh, meet <laughs> Olga. Yeah, well, we've barely touched on Olga. She That comes out of left field when all of a sudden we're at the ballet. Yeah. It does. The, I just, by yeah, the way, I just, at this point, I just want to say just a quick shout to anyone in solidarity that hasn't seen the film because this must be an absolute, like, cacophony of nonsense there's ballet in it because at this point inevitably yeah. yes we're off to the fucking ballet but yes we meet Olga here interesting facts coming in on the chat Jerboas are really weird creatures in life uh, apparently they're like weird kangaroo mice so there you go <laughs> somebody also said we're, we're still only 14 minutes into the film which is true this movie is so packed with Fact fucking stuffing. right Max right. you're going to to start speeding us through here oh it's my fault is it okay yeah. moving on um, yeah. I mean we're, we're a little further than that I think actually yeah we're, I, th- we're, I think we're we doing are. okay yeah, yeah I think he's embellishing I think he's embellishing but yeah no um, uh, Olga we see a werewolf transformation in another one here and I want to say actually I think this is like a reasonable juncture to say this I think that the werewolf transformations in this one are fun yes Across the board, yeah, you'll find no argument yeah. here. I think, I think they're they're really fun. This particular transformation is is really cool too. The reason that Beckmeyer and Sharp go to the ballet is because er, earlier in the film they very offhandedly mention that peop, there are people defecting from the USSR artists yeah. that they think could know something about the werewolves there, but they're coming to Australia for whatever reason we don't know yet. We find out later. Spoiler alert! <laughs> We're spoiling the whole thing anyway. That the, they are coming. Like the, she defected because she has this sort of psychic attraction to Philo <laughs> or something in the in this werewolf comedy. Anyway, they they go to the ballet to talk to some of these defectors that might know something for some reason about werewolves. And in the middle of rehearsal, she's doing pirouettes 
And with each turn, she's becoming more and more of a werewolf, which is a really clever transformation. Direct influence, I'm assuming, on Natalie Werewolf, uh, Natalie Portman's swan transformation on Black Swan. Uh, it must be. Has to be. 100%. Darren Aronofsky must be a huge Philippe Mora fan. Absolutely. Yep, that's literally the only logical line I can draw in those two <laughs> things. But yeah, no, like, um, yeah, she, she, uh, she werewolf transformations mid-performance, like mid-ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then leaps leaps for onto one of the other dancers and just I guess kills him. And probably, yeah. Um, but yeah, she's t- she's taken to hospital, and I think that it's at this point that this film properly gear shifts into madness. Yeah, yeah. This is where we really, really uh, snort the last line of madness cocaine, and this thing <laughs> just goes off the fucking rails. Uh, yes, Olga escapes uh, at this point. It's, it's the whole thing's chaotic, really chaotic, actually. Um, the whole kind of like the thing that starts off as an interrogation when she kind of goes under hypnosis to have this conversation and how that widens out is really something. That's pure cinema at that point. She is given an absolute masterclass in acting while she's under hypnosis. <laughs> it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, this actress whose name is, I'm trying to find, but she's, um, yeah, she plays Olga. She is incredible with her face. Uh, they Literally, she's doing things that you would normally rely on a proper effects transformation to do. Like, she can move her face, and she, she has such an elastic, incredibly performative face. She's so good. And when they combine it with these creaky, weird sound effects, it's so effective. It kind of makes you feel very uneasy. It really is a masterclass in facial movement, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really something. Off the back of this... Beckmeyer and Sharp go to Flo. Yeah, the, yes, the uh, commune is called the village. Flo. Yep, bit of a nilbog situation going on there. 100% a nilbog situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> on arrival, uh, yeah, Wolf Backwards meet a, a couple of villagers, um, including Kendi, who, Andy, I'm going to suggest is maybe your best character shout that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, he's my he's my MVP here. He's fucking hilarious. Yeah, Kendi is, is awesome, and his introduction is. A, a great jump scare for no reason and they immediately in the movie just say this was for no reason <laughs> basically like kendy's like oh yeah welcome to flow or whatever he says but yeah kendy's played by uh burnham burnham he's awesome probably my mvp, MVP as well my my mvp 100 he but like yeah you're right it's like he jump scares them for no reason and then later on he jump scares somebody else for, for no reason and they're just like you do this all the time and he's like yeah i know yeah, he keeps jumping out in the movie for no reason, and then he, <laughs> it's just part of his shtick. He loves but, to, to scare people. Um, at this point, yeah, like, in, like at Flo, Jaboa is here. She excuses herself to quietly go and give birth in a barn house. Yeah, this is That's right. This is yeah. gross, but really, really great. Like That baby is just really makes me feel uncomfortable. I love that you can see the webbing under like the fake fur. It's just an entirely gross. Little. My favorite thing though is when um, the little baby <clears throat> crawls into her pouch and she gives this like kind of coy little giggle as if the baby's tickling her. Like, it's kind of sweet. Yeah, it's very sweet. Uh, this is a great, another great highlight to me. This sequence. Uh, it's unnerving, but it's also really sweet. Yeah. And uh, Philip Mora really wanted to show a proper marsupial birth too, which is the baby is born in an embryonic stage and crawls up into the pouch to finish growing and <laughs> nursing. And that's exactly what it is. You even see her make this slime path for it to follow into her pouch. Yeah. And she's so, <laughs> you know, proud. And this is her and Donnie's baby, which apparently, according to the commentary on the Scream Factory disc, I believe that's where he said this, 
either that or an interview, but he says that for part of that sequence, they put that little uh, marsupial wolf costume on an actual mouse. <laughs> and they just used pieces of that. It's an actual mouse. No way. Crawling in some of that. It was very, uh, probably not very humane, but that's what it is. Uh, Olga also kind of shows up at Flo at this point. I feel like we're kind of like gathering characters where this is headed that's at this right. point. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We're also kind of briefly expected to get on board with Thilo, although we know he's an absolute monster. Yeah, I, I kind of like the film. The film kind of tries to reframe him a little bit at this point. Which character? Thilo. Thilo. I feel like this script must have been written very quickly, and it it does continuously try to at least somewhat reframe its characters. But the, I try to look at that optimistically, like they are just trying to make these people like they, they're growing. Philo <laughs> grows as a person. Beckmeyer does. I mean, this is where Beckmeyer decides he's sort of in league with the government up until this point. Sure. But um, when the government begins to surround the commune at this point to attack. Uh, Beckmeyer is trying to convince them not to do it. He's like, we, we can't bother these people. They, we can't exterminate them like so many other rare species that only were found in Australia prior to this. Like, we have to protect these people. They're people still. And the government's like, they're dangerous. So this is where we, yeah, we have a bit of a turn. Yeah, the government sends here. in the Omega Squad, um, who are completely, they're treated as if they're like Delta Force, as if they're the maddest fucking thing in the world, as if they're the Expendables. And they're shit, there's two guys <laughs> with sunglasses on, and like, they are obliterated in seconds. Yeah. Again, Mitch, uh, a bazooka <laughs> proven to be the hero of the piece. For uh, the second time in as many weeks, hundred percent, absolutely, yeah. Like a decent amount happens at this point because we have this sideline chat with Jerboa and uh, Donny, mm-hmm. who reunite, mm-hmm. and uh, and he meets his he meets his abomination wolf son, baby that looks like like you know like Minia and Godzilla, like Godzilla's son, who's fucking horrible. He's absolute nightmare fuel. And this little baby <laughs> has that same wrinkly, gross, scrotum-like thing. I hate him. Yep. I hate it at this mm-hmm. point. There's a cuteness to it when it's first born. You're like, ah, but it reaches a point where you're like, nah, no, you. Yeah, you he's cannot, like a. You cannot love this. No, he, he he's kind of cute to me. I, I find some cuteness there, but he is kind of like a scrotal Mac and me uh, thing. Uh. <laughs> like he's got these bright blue eyes. It, it, it's very. You had to go there. Yeah. Well, he does. He looks kind of like the Mac and Me guy, but you know, through the mind of Bob McCarran. And I, clearly, McCarran put the most effort into this thing too, because it has a lot of little animatronic elements yeah. to its to its face. Yeah, but it's cute. And Donnie again, unfazed, loves her, loves his baby. He will stop at nothing yeah, to protect her. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should say we we jumped ahead to the Omega team, but we should say in between this, the army initially also captures Olga and Thilo and interrogates them. Yeah. Uh, only important because this is where Beckmeyer has his full turn and begins to fall in love with Olga, the werewolf. Also, Olga's transformation here is awesome, as is Thylos. Yeah, I um, I had this written down because... Um, yeah, because basically I think that Beckmeyer has this conversation where he tries to talk to Olga and says that he wants to help, but that this whole slotting humans thing is bad PR. And he <laughs> persuades her to go and um, uh, undergo hypnosis, uh, hypnosis to help this study. And yeah, you're right. At this point, they have this kind of like almost kiss moment. Um, yeah, and I feel like what this film, I feel like what this film does not need at this point is a wolf-human romance B story when we already have a wolf-human romance A story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, this is definitely a pro <laughs> ecological, pro bestial movie. It's, I was gonna it's, say, I was gonna say, I was gonna like, say, yeah, you, you go ahead, go ahead. go ahead, Matt. Find a way to say that this isn't a pro bestiality movie. It, it is. You do you, and you know what? It's great. I love it. And they fall in love. <laughs> He's beginning to fall in love with her. And they discover also that the particular commune of werewolves in Australia is somehow related to the Tasmanian tiger, which was pushed into extinction through hunting back in the early, I believe, 1900s in Australia. And that's a true fact. And the opening title you were talking about earlier with that growling wolf in the beginning, that's the Tasmanian, the last remaining footage of the Tasmanian Mm. tiger. So what they're saying is through this extinction, the spirit of these animals went into these people. And it's, that's how it's lived on. <laughs> they have become were marsupials. This is because great they do, stuff. They get into the, the, the eradication of the thylacine in relatively deep detail when they talk about it in the 1880s, like the US uh-huh. and the, the British government decided that they were somehow the beast of Satan uh, and had to be mm-hmm. eradicated. So they began eradicating them. And then only after a while, they realized, maybe not. Yeah, that's right. The damage was done. Yeah, they... They thought they were satanic creatures for some reason, according to the history they of this do movie, look which might be true. I'm feeling stuff pretty fucking scary looking. What I think is they funny. Are. What I think yeah. is funny at this point is that, like, um, we understand at this point because the observations that they have um, of Olga and Thylo before they're eventually like released by uh, Beckmeyer. Yeah, um, Beckmeyer breaks them out. Breaks yeah, he out. breaks them out. Um, but they've connected Thylo to this genus of werewolf from decades ago, and there's like this like strong through line of biological explanation, kind of for how we've gotten to here. But it's at this point, in the face of now, by my count, two werewolf transformations that he saw in the flesh, mm-hmm. that Sharp, Beckmeyer's sidekick, picks now to be like, I'm a man of logic. I'm, ex- I'm exiting this situation. Yeah. He's- yeah. <laughs> it's, like, yeah it's, like, it's like, having seen this happen in front of me twice, and in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence confirming it, I now feel like this is a little far-fetched, and I'm going to go home. <laughs> Another... It's sudden character turn and transformation. Like, even at the end, yeah. the like, the very not to jump too far ahead, but when there's a massive transformation, like in the last thirty seconds of the film, he's still sitting like that. No, 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 still yeah, no. Like, yeah. It's it's like that. It, yeah, that I get. We'll get to that, I guess. But he plays that like almost like it's the funny. He it's just he's gone mad. Yeah, the, you know? that level of blind skepticism is <laughs> hilarious to me. Yeah, I do also think that like um, when you hear this kind of like, oh, the British started killing them off in 1888 because the Queen told them to, and then the following That's year, President Harrison told them to do the same thing because public panic would ensue if that existence was public. It's like if that guy had a YouTube channel now, it'd be a sensation. This all sounds unbelievably like tinfoil oh. hat conspiracy theory stuff. Oh, totally. This is QAnon horseshit. I mean, this, <laughs> these people would totally, uh, yeah, the, the president. In, in the current president in this movie is like it's such a it seems ridiculous but he's, he's trump i mean it's like he's exactly presaging where things went yep 100 we do kind of forward to uh donnie and jerboa and child at this point and the life of peaceful domesticity that they seem to have in the outback now but their life of peaceful domesticity is uh, threatened by the sound of distant gunshots so they decide that they're going to head to high ground and I guess essentially take their Ooh. life of solitude and intensify that away, further away. Yeah, not before being jump scared again by good old Kendi. Amazing. <laughs> and Kendi. <laughs> Hello! Kendi somehow <laughs> dies here, uh, or very, very near here, and it's my favourite point in the film. Yeah, can we pick this apart a little bit? So, like, um, so. 
Candy summons a wolf spirit, which presumably inhabits him. He does, yeah. I think the, the, what they're this trying to imply is this yeah. is the spirit. This is the spirit that they call on to transform themselves when... Uh, someone just said, I'm convinced this movie is actually about English colonialism. The Ware commune representing the Aboriginal community. I think that's in there for I, sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no reason it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's he, exactly what Kid Atlas absolutely holding this down. Yes, like that's exactly yeah. the allegory of this. Yeah. But uh, I think the spirit he's calling upon, which Philo later calls upon, and we'll get to that, but it's the spirit they were talking about that came out of these, like it's a natural spirit that came out of the extinction of these marsupial marsupials, the Tasmanian tigers. And yeah, he calls upon the spirit and... <laughs> and we get an amazing blurring of werewolf vision and slaughter of mercenaries and... Mm-hmm. Uh, some hunters. Uh, some hunters undead, who get killed. Uh, Undead fiery werewolf skeletons. It's a fuck that that's fucking amazing. Yeah, because these hunters get slaughtered, the military can't handle the hunting killing off these marsupial werewolves. They just you know, everyone keeps getting killed. So this is where they send in the Omega team, which is two guys and sunglasses who are yeah, it's two guys, two sweaty fly covered guys. By the way, this movie is drenched in sweat and flies constantly. It's two guys who look the least prepared no, no, to do this. They've just got a like, tent full of like RPG shells that aren't actually in yeah. an RPG. They're just lying loose, like just sleeping yeah. next to loose shells. Yeah, and this is this brings about my favorite scene in the movie, uh, and my favorite whole entire entire scene, really, my favorite moment when the Omega team is when the Omega team is sent out, and Jaboa and Donnie and Beckmeyer and Olga decide to go deeper into the bush to try to escape. Uh, Uh Philo says, I'm going to stay behind and summon the spirit like Kendi did, and I'm going to (laughs) stop this Omega team, even though they're basically the Keystone cops. I'm going to stop these guys. So he he summons the spirit, and one of his lines, one one of (laughs) Philo's lines when he's praying to the spirit is, Oh, fill me with your spirit! Make make me a big one. Make me a big one. Like there's a like you can make a request as to what kind of wolf you turn into. So then it cuts to these the Omega team, like you said, with this basic like you know consumer tent and no no reinforcements outside the tent of any kind. One of them is sitting outside the tent, sweating and terrified because of Kendi's skeleton having attacked them earlier, and the other guy who looks very sick yeah. is laying in the is a, is trying to sleep inside the tent and he's sweating and uh he hears some noise he hears a noise outside and the other omega guy is, is sounds like he's things aren't going well for him outside and the guy in the tent is like you okay you okay you okay sorry, like Matt, he keeps saying are you Matt, okay sorry, over that, and over again. sorry Matt, is that your australian accent just yeah right you okay you okay you okay it just gets higher and higher like that. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's my that's that's as far as I'm going to go with an Australian accent right now. But he, when the guy doesn't respond, he this is my my favorite moment in the movie. He picks up a machine gun. You know, he's shaking it, looking around, and then looks next to him, and there's a rocket launcher, and he trades it out for the rocket launcher, and that's when yeah, Philo Wolf comes blasting Pretty into great. the tent. It's great, and he is huge. And he's also clearly the redressed Razorback from Razorback yeah. because it's the same effects artist. It is definitely the, the Razorback. And he shoots the rocket launcher 
and blows himself up immediately. The whole jungle up. Now remember, we were led to yeah. believe that Omega Team were like the best of the best, indestructible. Hundred <laughs> percent. Oh my god, they're um, so bad at their job. Just before we jump out of this, I don't want to. I don't want to blow past the fact that when Candy dies, he has the best. He has, in my opinion, the best line in the film. Agreed. Because everybody gathers around him as he dies. And mm. I think it's going to be Jerboa that says, you'll turn into a river candy, then a rainbow, then a mountain. And he just says, no way, I'm just going to die. And then dies. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, they tell him all of these beautiful yeah. things he's going to transform into. He's like, I don't think so. Not for candy. It sounds like a lot of pressure <laughs> being a river. I'm just going to... Yeah, fuck yeah. it. Yeah. It's just like candy says no and just dies. Love it. That's brilliant. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the fact as well that at this point we jump back to um, the president and Officer Sharp, who's obviously defected. Um, he's left. Um, and they correctly speculate that Beckman has fallen in love with Olga. And then we do get this kind of like weirdly idyllic thing where these two interspecies couples mm-hmm. have this very harmonious existence in the outback for a bit. Yeah, also we briefly touch on the fact that the president is incredibly homophobic because he's okay with this interspecies relationship as long as it is yeah. heterosexual. <laughs> yeah yeah sharp goes back sharp who's you know turned a corner here he goes back and tells the president uh you know we've lost a lot of people and we can't find them and uh and the president yeah the president asks what happened to 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 donnie and right doesn't he ask what happened to donnie and jaboa and yeah. oh and beckmeyer he asked what happened to beckmeyer that's yeah and he's, and he's like he's like, like oh best he's, guess he fell in law he fell in love with that russian werewolf and he's like oh do you think yeah so? and he's like yeah probably and ran off yeah, and ran right and ran off with her. And the president says, "Well, was it was it a female?" And he's like, "I think so." And he's like, "Well, thank God, thank for God that. for that." Oh, yeah, thank God is... it was a female animal that he fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just like this is the worst uh, yes. ever, and, and completely unawful the, person. The Trump, part, the, the Trump comparisons just keep coming. Like that's uh, they just keep coming. Yeah. Line. They just keep coming. Mitch, this must have been incredibly infuriating for you because there was chronology hop after chronology hop after chronology hop and no way to possibly keep on track of it. Um, yeah, no, apart from the approximate age of children, yeah, I was. I had nothing else to like. How would you I had, know? Nothing because else to anchor myself to. You've no idea how a marsupial werewolf baby ages. Like, that, could, that baby could be 15 in a week. Yeah, well, I mean, like, the gestation felt quite accelerated, so it's like, oh, this baby's, like, four now. I was like, yeah, it's four in human years, but where are we on the timeline? Then, I have no idea. But then there's a moment where they're like, oh, I haven't seen Jaboa in that in 15 years, and I was like, 15 fucking years is the last, and we've got no concept of that. Like, there's just, okay, we get that there's, the kids have grown up, but we've got no concept of how long that takes for these kids or babies at all. The actors haven't aged they haven't even made the slightest attempt to age the actors. Yeah, you see Beckmeyer and Olga's daughter grow up, but Beckmeyer and Olga still look the same age. Like, Berriato ages beyond gracefully. He just doesn't age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, no. Like, yeah, there's no attempt to age them. Or, like, the, the kid gets older, yeah. and there's no attempt made at all to age them around, uh, around them. Yeah. Or around him, should I say. But... Yeah, and they do that alone because Jaboa and Donnie like relocate back to Hollywood to pursue their dream of breaking back into the film industry. Yeah, and then at this um, point we learn that the only reason that is even possible that these people are able to reintegrate themselves into society is that the Pope has decreed <laughs> the Pope has said that it is okay for werewolves to exist and the President has kind of fallen in line with that thinking that as long as yeah, the Pope cause... says it's fine... <laughs> 
It's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. The, yeah. It's like they say, like the president uh, tried to do another exterminate or continued his extermination rampage. And finally the Pope said, these are all God's creatures or whatever. And suddenly it stopped. So fine. now it's safe. I just can't. Yeah. Jaboa and Donnie have already gone back to living in the public, but now it's safe for yeah, but, Beckmeyer. But, and, but he's now called yeah. Sully Spellenberg. Um, yeah, that's right. So that, that's yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> and I love the, I love the way they discover that because now we have Beckmeyer's back to teaching. He's back to being a professor, and he's teaching in California again at the University of San Andreas. Or yeah, University of San Andreas. University of San University of San Andreas, where everyone wears either red or orange button-up shirts. That's right. Yeah, it's the future. It's the future. It's the future. Yeah, All right, get you know. Yeah. There's never a moment where he goes, well, if it's okay that we can kind of reintegrate obse- ourselves in the society, I'm going to go back to teaching. It like, goes from him being in the yeah. outback in Australia to being... In front of a lectern. In LA in a classroom, like he was at the start, where for a moment I was like, wait, what, is this the same class? What is this? And then it was like, oh, yeah. no, no, <laughs> we, are, we are at least 20 years in the future. Yeah, yeah, where everyone wears our orange shirts and... Uh, Logan's run. Yeah, very Logan. <laughs> yeah, it's like a two two penny Logan. Right. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's really funny at this point because obviously Beckmeyer gets approached by uh, Jabot and Donnie's kid who explains so they've reintegrated. Clearly a real actor. Oh, no, 100%. He, he is fucking <laughs> terrible. But like um, uh, he explains that they've they've successfully reintegrated into society and yes, yeah, uh, he's a uh, what was it Sully Spellenberg? Sully Spellenberg, yeah, not at all. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, and she and she is Loretta Carson. Um, yes, and I was just looking at. I, I think I think it's amazing when he when he says that and he's like, ah, yeah, my mother gets enough attention nowadays without revealing she's a marsupial human. <laughs> yeah. and, do you know that line is the li- that line would be hilarious anyway but the fact that this guy is so fucking awful it's just it's just <laughs> accelerated it's just so much better yeah it's absolutely yeah, rocket fuel but uh yeah we're uh we're heading off now mitch to not the oscars but the academy of laser arts awards mm-hmm. yes the, academy the natural of laser progression arts. of the oscars that's that's where the oscars are headed Yep, absolutely. They just get beamed directly into your brain. And I love um, that Damon <laughs> Everage is still alive and kicking and presenting it. Yep. Um, and, yeah, I actually think, considering how ridiculous the route to this moment is, I actually think that as a payoff, it's really fun. What, having Damon Everage here? No, having the part where, like, Jibboe accepts the Best Actress Award, then all the strobe lights of the camera is triggering, triggering a transformation well, and her attacking again. Essentially the same as the end of The Howling. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, it's sort of a, a twist on that. And I, I really like it, too. I mean, again, like the rest of this movie, the set for these awards the, is insanely cheap looking. It's like two glitter curtains behind Dame Edna and some flashbulbs. And that's the that is the laser Oscars or whatever the hell they call it. <laughs> this is and you don't see the audience. You just hear them. And Dame Edna, when she steps away, it's just immediately uh Imogen Annesley is there to accept the award. And of course, the strobes begin to go off from the cameras. And like, she wouldn't think of this if there are photos being taken constantly, which there wouldn't be, but there are here in this world. But she, the, the, yeah, the cameras start flashing and she just starts turning into a. You also have werewolf. to believe you don't get to be the biggest actress in the world without being exposed to many cameras because we see quite a tranche of various photo shoots of her. Um, yeah, hard to, hard to believe this is the first time this has happened, but yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to gauge what the career was like. What Sunny 
Spellenberg's Sonny, so Donnie Sonny slash Sonny Spellenberg's movies were, and and how she got this award because it's just photographs that you see. Yeah. Also, he's hidden behind an outrageous fake mustache. I think also yeah. over and above anything else, I feel like this is a peculiar juncture. This is starting nitpicking about the logic. Sure. Absolutely, probably yeah. Right. Yeah, take the logic we're nitpicking now and apply it to the whole movie. Cause the yeah, whole I was gonna say just kind of yeah. logic. <laughs> like I we have, there's if you think you don't need to watch this now, you do because we have barely touched on the only the thing worth mentioning. About yeah, this tip of the iceberg. That, tip of the iceberg. Yeah. At this point of the film, Dame Edna Everidge becomes the avatar for the audience, and she's just trying to hold it together the same as we are. Like, and it's just the camera's zooming into her mouth. It's just it's a wild time. It's a fantastic finale. And it's the end of the Howling Three. It is the it end is. of the Howling Three, Matt. What a choice for this particular platform, <laughs> particularly for a live one. Um, so, on, having so, having watched the film, thought about it, and now eighty six minutes later, I still don't know what to make of this. Like, um, this is all over the map in almost every sense of the word. Everything about the kind of uh, the origin story of what we're seeing is, I think that what I think is curious about it is that like it is it curiously gets like it doesn't get bogged down in over explanation but there is a lot of explanation given to this and also answers no questions at all no like it is a really curious balance of like laying on really thick like um trying to pick apart mythology of this and not succeeding at all yeah it's the kind of low budget movie that feels like they clearly had very little money and very little time so to make it feel like it was moving really quickly and and keep it engaging they really just bounce between the same four-ish locations yeah. constantly. They just keep going back to them, you know? Uh, uh-huh. and, and just, the, and the other tactic is they just jam the movie with, with plot. Just, yeah, I was, so I was gonna, like, like, if in doubt, just, like, cram every available space with words. And like, yes. and like, and I don't think that's necessarily a problem because, like, for as much as like, I'm so like, is that it's fra- that sounds like a really harsh criticism of it, and I actually had a lot of fun with this, and I think that the reason mm. that I did is because, um, in spite of the things that I just said, like, you're never far away from a fun set piece or a transformation or a something, and all of those things something. land so yeah. well and so convincingly that I think that like, it becomes kind of churlish to start concerning yourself with basically anything else. Like, I think, like, the film does what it needs to do to get itself from A to B to C. But everything else around it is so fun that I find it very hard to really pull it up too much for the things about it that don't quite land. Uh, That's a good review. Do you know, I I said it at the top of the show, I'll say it again now. I'm a big fan of The Howling. I've always loved The Howling. It's up there in my kind of top three or four werewolf movies. That list will probably never change. I think there's stuff about The Howling 2 that is worth mentioning, like the fact that for some reason Jimmy Neal's in it. Christopher Lee's dressed like an absolute buffoon and he gamely just passes it off as normal. Uh, Sybil Danning <laughs> at one point wears sunglasses because she's got conjunctivitis and it was the only way we couldn't see that her eyes were gushing with pus. And, but everything else in oh. it is terrible. But this film is just leagues ahead of the second one, as far as I'm concerned, and it never gets this good again. I almost decided to watch four, five, six, and I, I was never going to watch The Howling Reborn. That was never going to happen. Um, <laughs> I was going to kind of stop at Howling Six, The Freaks. But uh, Good yeah, it's um, there's a lot to love in here. There's a lot of ideas, and I think the fact that, like you said, Matt, that in the second film, Philippe Mora was kind of hamstrung by his association to Hemdale, that he was allowed to kind of fly free. I think it serves the film. I think there's a lot of ideas and I don't think they all necessarily work and it could have maybe done me losing 15 minutes 
but I think there's a good film in here. There's certainly a better film in here than there is for the second film. Yeah, I would agree. I, I just think this movie moves like a rocket because of the things I was mentioning before, and it's such a lively movie. And I think it's, while there's some problematic stuff in it, as there is in everything from the 80s, I mm-hmm. think its heart is in the right place. Like, I like the ecological themes, and I like how fun it is. And I think uh, Philippe Mora was allowed to do more what he wanted with this this movie and i think it is unfairly maligned because it's so weird and because it asks you to accept immediate plot developments that seem ridiculous at face value from an objective standpoint (laughs) but subjectively you can't watch this you can't watch this and say it's boring it's not boring this is a bat shit movie also the fact that the film's gonna pend as a a howling film and then the werewolf <laughs> thing is almost uni- like uniformly discarded in favor of yeah. marsupials, which are. I mean, we haven't even quite mentioned. Nice. I mean, we haven't really talked about how this the, the, the Howling series is one of those rare franchises where normally you have a build from the first one to the second one. Usually, it still has as you go along with each sequel, it has something to, to do with the previous ones, and they don't go off the rails or weird until part five or six or whatever. This one immediately goes off the rails with two and on in three is on another fucking planet i mean this is like it's just great i mean and i I think there's a kinship part of the reason i chose it is because with dementia 2 which mitch i'm very grateful screened tonight uh, i feel like it has a kinship with that because it's the same thing it's like there's no connection we just do a (laughs) different kind of movie for no money and really fast and i I, that's what I like about this movie is it's really good considering how fast Philly Mora had to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the only reason that I didn't ask this at the start is because I just came across the fact that I obviously understood there was some connection, not necessarily to the source material, but to like the people that were attached to the first couple. Because I was going to ask if this was originally conceived to be a sequel, to be an entry into this franchise. Like, see, like watching it for the first time today, like I think that it's a reasonable question to be like, was this the original endpoint for this? You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't one of those films that was made and then slotted into an existing franchise. But I think that it, like it has the feel of that. Yeah, it just in a way, it just weirdly it just wasn't one of those things. This was a film that was made as the Howling Three, <laughs> yeah. and it's absolutely a part of the franchise, whether you like from its conception, whether you like it or not, like. Uh, whether it makes sense or not, this is this this is how this franchise was always meant to go. This was this wasn't just something that was like tagged on there on there later, like the later like the later entries in the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise or things like that. This was yeah, like this. This is how this franchise went. Um, yeah, certainly up until this point, I can't speak to the things beyond this. But as long as Philippe Mora's involvement was, which I think is only this one. Um, yeah, I believe I believe that doesn't true. go beyond that. Um, uh, so, Matt, let's talk about you. Yeah, Matt. Everyone has just seen, uh, or at least everyone has hopefully just seen Dementia Part Two, which um, uh. Uh, we've seen a couple of times um, at a couple of different festivals. Obviously, saw it at Fright Fest. It screened, obviously, Mitch programmed in it at the first in-person Soho event. Yep. Um, it's really exciting to have it back here with a view to it now having a release as well. So, um, 
we've heard the story on the podcast a couple of times because obviously you've been on here a couple of times and we've talked about it before about the <laughs> the genesis of the film and how it came to be but I would be more than happy for you to tell that story again um, with the addendum of it now being out in the world or about to be out in the world thank you yeah I know we've talked about it so much because it's taken so long for it to potentially get out in the world by the way uh, can I just the, quickly say mm, Suzanne Voss is on this call as well oh yes um, if you want to bring the Suzanne lead of in, the film we could bring yeah. Suzanne in if she wants if she's Let's happy to she may not be Suzanne, we have just dropped her right in the shit I think we should just bring her in just bring her in just Suzanne hello hi Suzanne <laughs> hi everybody okay. good Sorry, evening Suzanne. how are you I, I didn't realise that you were you were mid snack I, I would hate to kind of interrupt yes that, that's true <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be caught. It was pretty abrupt, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome, Suzanne. It's good to see you. It's good Wait, to see I you too. You. Thank you for joining us and coming in and saying hello. Um, I actually, um, I actually got to meet you after Dementia Part Two played at Fright Fest London. I, um, I love that film. I'm very excited that more people are going to get to see it. So thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm delighted that more people are going to get to see it. It was so much fun to do and. Uh, uh, working with Matt and Mike and Najara and Graham, it's just, it, it, I mean, it was insane. And it was uh, four or five of the best days of my life. I mean, we just, <laughs> everybody was just gung-ho uh, to do whatever they needed. And um, blood and guts and vomit and didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that I loved my makeout scene with Matt. <laughs> <laughs> We're all very jealous as that. Yep, hundred percent. Hi. Well, so did I. It was, it was it was a blast. By the way, that scene uh, was the first scene we shot out of the gate. We did that scene. <laughs> yep. Day one. <laughs> Top of the morning. But um, yeah, no, Suzanne, congratulations on the film. I, yeah. I I loved it then. I love it now. I'm really excited that yeah. it's it's, that it's getting a Great. real platform. It's yeah. wonderful. Thank you guys. I, I appreciate your mentioning it and helping us get it out into the world. It's fabulous. I'll let you get back to Matt. Lovely to meet you. Thank you, Suzanne. Again, bye. Thank you. Suzanne, all the best. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you so Suzanne. much. Thanks for Thank coming. You. Thank you. That's yeah. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> um, uh, Matt, uh, yeah, like I yeah. say, um, it's taken a little while um, for a couple of reasons. And we, and we talked about mm. it like way back when you were first on the show about the fact that like it's difficult to know what to do with, from a like distributor's point of view with a film that's this eccentric and also mm. kind of at this kind of runtime. It's really yeah. great that it is now that it's now getting a platform. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. To recap what you were mentioning before and what Suzanne just mentioned about the five days, like and and how I was relating it to Howling Three. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that was made because of a challenge from another film festival yeah, where yeah, they sure. had an empty slot and they wanted to fill this a slot. It was kind of a gimmick, and uh, Josh Goldblum, who runs that festival, uh, Cine Apocalypse, he basically said, mm-hmm. "If you guys can make a film, the challenge being when we announce the ske- the festival schedule, we'll leave a slot empty, and you can show whatever you make." And he he asked the producers of Boulderlight Pictures to do it. So Boulderlight then asked myself and Mike Teston, the co-director, to make the film. And the annou- the festival was announced about thirty days before we had to finish the film. So we. Yeah, conceived it, wrote it, shot it, and cut it in about a month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, so what you watch tonight, and I'm just, apologies if I if this is a broken record and most people have heard this already, but that what you watched was the result of that. There was a little, I, I think the one thing we 
haven't said much is that the score we just couldn't get that done so the score was added after the fact but mm. okay. otherwise it's pretty much the movie yeah like, uh, then, like um, as it was found kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah right yeah it, it, it exactly yes yeah we had a screw we wrote a script but it was only about 50 53 pages so we were it is kind of if we would come up with an idea on set we would just do it as long as it wasn't too, too time consuming because mm-hmm. like suzanne said we shot this in four days with a fifth pick up days to do inserts and uh, some more with the nightmare sequence and stuff like that. And then Dark Star Pictures is putting the film out, which, by the way, the release is getting expanded. Originally, it was just North America, but now it's expanding. I think this is the first we've set up this to the UK and Australia. Fantastic. That's so, amazing. There you go. Yeah. Yay. Which is exciting. And we're going to have a limited theatrical plus uh, Blu-ray, which I'm really excited about the Blu-ray. I've seen some concept art for it, and we have a behind-the-scenes. It's it's going to be really cool. Nice. Uh, as well as VOD, obviously. But, um, yeah, uh, Darkstar is putting it out, and I think part of the reason that they are putting it out, I ha- only can assume this, is they've, uh, they've uh, collaborated with Bloody Disgusting, the horror site, to release four titles a year. And I know that Brad Miska really liked this movie when he first saw the, the version at, um, at that first festival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a big surprise. Like Brad decided to make it the second title. The first being the first Dark Star Bloody Disgusting collaboration is a movie called Honeydew, oh, I, which was yeah, directed yeah. by uh, well, it stars Steven Spielberg's uh, son, I believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And it's, it's it's sort of a, a twist on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sort of plot line, and then the second film that they're putting out in that collaboration between Bloody Disgusting and Dark Star is Dementia Two. Nice. I couldn't be th- more thrilled about. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's how it finally happened. And, and they, you know, it's perfect because Dark Star and Bloody Disgusting are just get the, like, other distributors just weren't getting it for the reasons you said. It's black and white. It's really weird. <laughs> Nothing like the first one. And it's a short feature. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a 67-minute feature. So it has the same runtime as, like, an old Val Luton movie or something. Yep. And people don't really release things that length anymore. So we were getting to the point of desperation where we were thinking, well, we might have to add some runtime to this if anyone's going to put it out or just release it ourselves. And then finally we were like, uh, you know, Dark Star came out of the woodwork and got it. Like I said, just, they just got it. And um, so we're happy about that. I mean, that's very yeah. exciting. Thank you. Yeah. So no, thank, like, and thank I, you, by the way. I just want to say thank you, Mitch, for showing it again and doing these Shockdown Saturdays, and I'm yeah, uh, embarrassed that this one. Unmute yourself right yeah, now. Yeah, come back yeah, please un- un- unmute yourself. This feels like an appropriate juncture because we're now at the end of this eight-week madness that you've programmed. Um, <laughs> Shockdown Saturdays. I think I speak for everyone in the room. I would confidently speak for everyone in the room when I say that I think that this has been a real lifeline for people and um, really something to look forward to at a time when there's not a massive amount to look forward to. Um, and it's like just continually bringing us these ridiculously high quality and like meticulously programmed things delivered so kind of passionately is unbelievable. Like literally nobody is doing what you're doing right now. And uh, uh, yeah, it's really amazing. And I think that it's about time that we all took a minute to just really appreciate that again. Well, yes. I mean, thank you, thank you for those kind words. I, I would like to um, just kick off with saying a massive thank you to Matt and Suzanne and Nahara and um, Graham, all of the team in um, Mensch Part 2, because like I alluded to in my opening introduction, um, this really was the film that birthed the Soho Horror Fest all the way back in 2018. <laughs> no, I, you're laughing, but I'm totally serious. I mean, those kind of, those semi-drunken, let's, let's so. sand the edges off, 
those tipsy chats in the um in in the Phoenix bar when we were we were talking about possibly playing the film and how wonderful it would be were were the cementing factors that made me really really want to uh, do a film festival that was playing films that maybe either didn't reach the UK or didn't quite reach a satisfactorily large audience in the UK. I mean, I absolutely adored Dementia Part 2 from the outset. And my only <laughs> criticism from that screening was, why the fuck aren't there more people in this screening? Why isn't this on a 500-seater venue? And we couldn't provide a 500-seating venue, but we could provide 35 more people to see that film and it absolutely encapsulates and embodies the kind of the ethos of our festival which is just that that indie genre spirit and that, that kind of can-do attitude um, whether it's for a competition for another film festival or just the passion of all of the players portrayed on screen to defy any kind of productorial or budgetary nonsense um it's it's um it's, it's absolutely testament to everyone's passion involved in those films so i have to say thank you for it there's there's a very very legitimate reason as to uh why you're here and why we're playing all of these films <laughs> obviously you're an incredible friend of the festival but also like i genuinely do believe that dementia part two is one of the kind of sedimentary it's like a bedrock to our festival and I'm so proud just to get to play it again to more people. And the fact that it is now going to go out farther wide and be kind of birthed into the world, I can't wait to just promote it more so and sell it to more people. It's, it's, um, it is very much the kind of the cornerstone, it's the edifice, it's everything that we stand for in independent genre cinema on screen in its most lovable and disgusting way. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, Matt. Um, that is and, way and, too, thank you. Beyond beyond that, thank you everyone that is here. I mean, there's many, many familiar faces in the chat um, that has been with us for the last eight weeks. And thank you all just for kind of sticking with us because this was yes. kind of random, kind of weird um, format to do a film festival. Um, so thank you for kind of riding us yeah. out. Uh, through the thick and the thin, through the the kind of the the films that everyone was really looking forward to, and maybe the weekends where everyone was like, well, I don't know what the fuck this is, but I'll I'll go with it anyway. Um, so just yeah, just thank you to you all because we genuinely wouldn't, and we I mean we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you all those years ago. We wouldn't be here uh, if it wasn't for you now. So thank you. Thank you much, and I again just want to say I think everyone here can appreciate and as really fucking chuffed with how much you've done over not just not just the past eight yeah. weeks which is mad in and of itself that you've done well, you've last done a festival years, yeah. every week but the fact that you've done like a festival every three months at least is just absolutely fucking wild it's, yes. oh, well, it's Andy did you say eight weeks has it not just been these eight weeks oh shit Oh, fuck. Right, I forgot. Sorry, you did say eight weeks. It has been eight weeks. And I did say it was the last festival, but I forgot to mention that there are four more weeks left. Yeah, this fucking guy. Yeah, I didn't think it was my place to say that. But so, Sorry. Like, yeah. Sorry. I, I don't, no, that was just, you know how it gets, like, you get really into a film and I'm like, I am so into Dimension Part 2 that you just kind of forget that there's other films coming. So, yeah, yeah there, there are, there, there, there might be. Four more weeks coming, but you might so find much, out tomorrow. 
Mitch, are you exclusively Whoa. revealing that you're running this through the month of April? Yeah, I am. Ah! Oh my because, god, you know, that's we, we, we said We said that the film festival would be an anti-reality and an escapist provider for lockdown. And lockdown is continuing, so why shouldn't shockdown? Fantastic. Um, yeah. Fantastic. It's just what we all need right now. Well, we've got we've got ten more feature films, a whole bunch of short films, and some really really special events to be Amazing. playing throughout Amazing. April. Wow! Time. Fuck it, why not? Let's see how much my blood pressure takes. <laughs> That's right. You're a good man. That's the attitude. Good, Jesus Christ, man! Honestly, can you could, like look, Mitch? Right? Like, I'm fine with this, but can you promise me one thing? See in May, will you sleep? <laughs> nah. Oh. <laughs> he's going to do these to fucking November. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to lie, back in back in kind of January when like Boris decided to deploy this onto us, I was like, could I do it every fucking weekend? And then <laughs> no, 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 that's 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 inappropriate because we, I, I, I never want to just be like trotting out films. Like I really, really want that to be known. This isn't an extension of the film festival insofar as. Here's some back catalogue stuff we didn't play before. It's genuinely some stuff that I absolutely love. We've got four themes uh, that are really, really fucking cool and super prescient. So, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you'll see it tomorrow. Who knows? Who can say, yeah? Guys, this feels like a very convenient point to wrap up. Thank you all for taking the time to check in and do this with us. Uh, Mitch, thank you for asking us to come back. It's always a pleasure to do these things with you. Matt, thank you so much for picking uh, marsupials and bringing it to the table. Uh, Yeah, this has all been amazing. Thank you for having me and to backtrack a little bit. Thank you, Mitch, for doing this. I'm honored and humbled and (laughs) embarrassed, but thank you for doing this. And thank you for uh, being one of the first festivals to show Dementia 2. Really appreciate it. I love you too. Aw, this is lovely. This is dead cozy. <laughs> Super cozy. Yeah. I'm ready to go in a barn and birth a marsupial. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Gross. So that was it. That was our live show with Matt Mercer talking The Howling 3, The Marsupials. Again, massive thanks to Mitch Harrod and everyone at Soho Horror Film Festival for, again letting us come on and talk absolute rubbish much appreciated as always no Mitch by the way just me taking this one out just want to say again thanks to everyone for listening you're all amazing if you do want to get in touch about this episode or anything else really in general there are a number of ways you can do that Facebook and Instagram we are Strong Language Violent Scenes you can get us on Twitter at Strong Violent PC and of course you can get us by email although I think Mitch is planning on retiring that at stronglanguageviolentscenes at gmail.com. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page by now, then please, please do. We will be back on Monday with another mini-sode. All the usual stuff on there, what we've been watching, what you guys have been talking about, crucially. Mitch's pitches, I'm, st- I'm still wading through the mire of nature going wild. All of that and more, and we'll let you know everything that you need to know about next week's episode and our guest and film combination this is normally the part where mitch would take us out on the stuff about chuds it falls to me to do that this time we'll be back on monday join us if you can and in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than to live as food in a world of chuds goodbye You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.